G'day. I believe we're reading Hebrews 2.10. <laughs> Unless you got it wrong, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Rightio. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to the end of the chapter. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For the reason he had to... For, the reason, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in, in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." And the song fits in fine, so that's really good too. It's wonderful, in fact. Hebrews. I almost tried to convince Dal just to do a couple of verses this week because there's so much in here. And we're not going to actually be able to get into the fullness of, of, of everything that's here, but we're going to take the, the major message that's there. For those who haven't been here for the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. The writers of the Hebrews starts off by saying that God has communicated to people ever since he's made them. He, he did it through prophets, with, with, with the mediator for the prophets being the angels. And he said, yet in these last days, he's spoken to us, not through prophets, not in many different ways, but finally, in the complete way, through his son. And then he says that this son is better than the angels. What the message that we have is better because it comes from a son and not from an angel. And then at the beginning of chapter 2 he says, Therefore, listen to what the son says. Pay careful attention to him because if you don't, you'll drift away. And then last week we looked at, well, that was the negative. If you don't listen to the son, you'll drift away. But the positive was, why do we listen to the son? What, what's the message, if you like, that he gives us? And the message was, well, he has saved us. God intended us to be rulers in this world. Yet, because of sin and through 
despair. We were no longer the rulers we were supposed to be because of our rebellion. But Christ came to bring us back and put us in the place of glory that God intended for us as people who are made in his image. And at the very end of of, uh, verse 9 from last week, it says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Death. I was down uh, in the mall every now and then. I haven't been down there for about a couple of months now, but I used to go down to the mall and on Friday and Saturday nights you have people who are expressing the gospel of Christ by standing on a soapbox and preaching to people. Every now and then I go along to not support them necessarily but I stand around the edges because every now and then you get disaffected people who are really angry with the messages there and it's nice to stand alongside them and say why how's it going you know why are you angry and listen to their complaints and one of the ones that seems to come up every now and then is when they hear this message of Jesus suffering death for everybody tasting death that bothers them And they say, well, that's just a really silly way to do it. Or it's just plain wrong. It sounds almost, and they quote famous people by saying, it sounds almost like cosmic child abuse. That the father would cause his son to suffer. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. And in the time that the writer of the Hebrews was writing, the same complaints were coming out. And the writer knew that there was going to be this sort of argument coming up he's just said the son has come and he's bringing us back to glory he's our hero if you like he's saving us and the comment that people would have is heroes don't die heroes don't suffer heroes aren't put on a cross heroes slay the dragon sure but then they get the fair maiden they don't unless, of course, you're watching a Chinese epic. Um, The hero is supposed to win and not go through all that horror. And you can talk to uh, various other faiths, and they'll say, look, our big problem with you is how can God die? And how can God suffer like that? It just doesn't make any sense. And so at the beginning of the passage we're reading tonight, the writer says something which is, I think, really strange. And a lot of people comment on it. Verse 10, he says this. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And that's the main point of the passage we're looking at. He's explaining that. He doesn't just say it's what God did, cope with it. You know, every now and then you have those sorts of comments where you don't understand what God's doing and the preacher will say to you, it's God Almighty. Who are you to question God? Just accept that's what God does. And it's true sometimes that we're kind of put in that situation. Yet the writer here says, he says, hold on a second, it's not just that it's difficult to understand. He said, when you really get down to it, it is fitting. And the word fitting there means it's right, it's proper, it, it makes perfect sense that God would do it this way. We don't have 
We're not going to be able to go into everything that he says, but hopefully we'll pick on three things that he says in here to help us understand why it is fitting, proper, right, that Jesus Christ should suffer and die, that we might be returned into a right relationship with God. Sometimes I think we get embarrassed of the fact that when we talk to people, we talk about the death, the resurrection of Christ, as if somehow we have to make good reasons why they might come to Jesus. And we talk about all sorts of other things. And the writer of the Hebrew here says, no, it is right and proper and fitting that God, through whom and for him, through whom and for whom everything exists, should act in this way. In other words, he's saying, this, the fact that his son suffers and dies, takes death to bring mankind into the position of being the sons of glory they were meant to be. It shows God in the right light. It proclaims his glory in a way that nothing else does and it's the best that could possibly be. And we're going to talk about three things that he says here. So, number one, verses 11 through 13, he says this. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. The first thing he says, which is the reason that God acted like this, and it shows us the glory of God, is Jesus had to do it this way so that he could stand, if you like, with us. We're family. Jesus had to come as a human being and go through suffering so that he could be, if you like, in solidarity with us. It wasn't just God coming and rescuing the poor pitiful creatures and placing them somewhere, but God himself came and stood with us. So verse 11 says, the one who, who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are of the same family. And then he gives us three verses which seem at times to be taken a little bit out of context. And he uses them to declare this solidarity with which we stand with Christ. And the first of them is from Psalm 22. Now Psalm 22 is that famous messianic psalm where David actually is the one who's speaking about an experience he's going through, but it's the one that Jesus says applies to him because on the cross it's the one it seems that he quotes. It starts off, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then down in verse 22, after he's gone through this suffering, verse 21, he says, please save me. Save me from dogs. Save me from the lion. Save me from wicked people. And then there's this switch in verse 22, as he has been saved by God. And he makes this declaration. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And then he goes on the rest of the psalm to talk about those who are rescued from poverty, those who have been sick and made well. And he says, this is what I proclaim. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing out to us that Jesus comes and stands with us. And having been vindicated by God as one of us, he now can come and proclaim to us that we together might praise God with him. And he can do this because he's a brother of ours. 
Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We kind of figure anyone could come and pray with us. But it makes a difference when it's a solidarity. We as a family are coming together. This in one, which we get to a little bit later, of the same family at the end of verse 11, we often think of that is that we are hidden in Christ. We're one with Christ. But the way it comes out in this verse is that Christ is one with us. If we are going to be restored to the place that God wants us to in glory, it's not just that we reach up to be with Christ, but this passage says Christ reaches down to be one with us. Then the next verse, the next two verses that he quotes come from Isaiah chapter 8. Fascinating passage from Isaiah chapter 7, 8 and 9. The prophet Isaiah is talking with one of the kings of Judah, Ahaz, and there's problems from the northern kingdom, from Samaria and Damascus, where they're coming down and attacking Judah. And God says to Isaiah, look, Isaiah, go with your son, with your number one son, whose name is Shear Jeshub, which means, oh, don't worry about all the meanings, there is a remnant. All right? He says, go and talk to the king and say, Look, I'll save you. I'll save you. Don't worry about the people who are coming down from the north. I will protect you. And then Isaiah says to the king, just ask for a sign. Ask for a sign that God's with you. And the king says, no, I don't think I want to ask for a sign. Um, I don't want to test God. Why doesn't he want a sign? He doesn't want a sign because he doesn't believe in God and he knows if he gets a sign that he'll have to actually obey the sign. So he says, no, I'm fine on my own, just leave me alone. And Isaiah then says, don't worry, there will be a sign. A son will be born to a virgin and his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God is with you. And then a little bit later on, Isaiah sleeps with his wife again, well that's what it says in the passage, and he has another son, God says to name this son Mahashalal Hashbaz, which means plunder's going to happen, loot. Right? In other words, the Samaritans are going to be plundered and all the loot's going to be taken away. God's going to fulfil what he promised to fulfil. And then you have this verse being said where even though the king rejects God and doesn't trust in God, Isaiah says in verse 17 of chapter 8, I will put my trust in him, in God. I will do it. And then his next verse says, not only I, but my whole family will do it. Here am I with my children. We will trust in God. And in the very next chapter is chapter 9 where he talks about the one who is born where the government will be on his shoulders his name will be Emmanuel, etc., etc. So what's the, prophet, what's the writer to the Hebrews doing here? He's saying this solidarity of family is what Christ has come to do and why it's fitting. It's not just someone standing individually alone saying, I will trust in God. But Christ is like Isaiah who says, I have put my faith in God. I will trust in God. I am in a good relationship with God. But not only me, my family with me. We will be in a right relationship with God together. 
So the first reason that the writer of Hebrews says it's fitting that Christ should be made the right one to bring us back to God is because he stands with us. We're the same family as him. How does that impact our lives at all? One might wonder. I find it fascinating that the thing it says here about Jesus is so that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And I had to look about what am I going to take away with this. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the one who made everything, is not ashamed to come and to suffer here as a human being so that he might make me a part of his family. He's not ashamed to take on that suffering, to be reviled by the world, to be condemned by the world. He's not ashamed to do that. The application I take away from that is, how can I be ashamed of such a relationship? If Jesus is not ashamed to come and to stand alongside you, fallen, sinful, rebellious against God, in order that he might make you a part of his family, how can we be ashamed of him? If he truly is the one who is rescuing us and taking us to be with Christ in glory. Then in verses 14 and 15, he gives a second reason. Not only did he come to make us a part of his family, he doesn't just stand with us. But secondly, in coming as a human being, in coming and suffering and dying, he saves us. He stands with us. We're not to be ashamed of him. And he saves us because we're of the same humanity. Verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. It's fascinating there that the two words for share are different, if you like, in in the Hebrew, there's a similarity between them. But it says that we have flesh and blood. We don't have much choice about it. But Jesus chose to have flesh and blood. He made a conscious choice to come and to share in our humanity. For what reason? So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It says that he came as a human being, he made himself like us, he suffered like us, and particularly it talks about his suffering in death, so that we would be free of the power of the devil. Now what power does the devil have over us? You know, we talk about the fact that the devil is the, the king of this world, and the, and the Bible talks about it in those terms but what is the power that he has over us that Jesus has defeated and conquered one of the writers that I was writing said this way what was it seems is Satan's task is often to come and be an accuser of the saints he's the one who holds God to account for God's justice he brings us before God and says if you had a look at this person they really aren't a follower of yours. You really need to reject them. And he says, well, what did Jesus do? He completely took away the power that Satan has 
in this world. He fully tasted death for us. On the cross, he bore our sins completely. So now when Satan comes to accuse us, we say, well, hold on a second, have you seen Jesus? He was innocent, he was perfect, and yet he took the whole wrath of God upon himself. He was our substitute. He fulfilled fully and honoured God in a way that completely covered the dishonour that we had given to God in our sin. You have no right to accuse us. When it says that he destroyed him who holds the power and death, the, the word destroyed means he nullified him. He gives him no foothold on which to now hold this death over our heads. And Jesus did that by coming as a human and tasting death for us, by taking all of our sin upon himself. And then he destroyed that, he saves us. Now when the devil comes before God and has a look at you or has a look at me and says, God, you need to punish this person. They've dishonoured you, they've fallen short of your glory, they haven't lived the way they should live. God says, well, hold on a second. My son paid for their sin. He died. He suffered for them. I'm holy and righteous and I have completed and carried out my wrath. It's being done. Therefore, they're acceptable to me because Christ's righteousness is their righteousness. But not only did he defeat that, destroyed the devil but it goes on in verse 15 and says as a part of our salvation it freed us those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death I don't know how many commentaries I read on discussing how that possibly works out what on earth is this fear of death that we had I mean who's afraid of dying Nobody's hand goes up. Seriously, who's afraid of dying? A couple of people are afraid. I'm not terribly afraid of dying. It's just a method of death that I'm not into. As long as it's quick and painless, I don't mind going to heaven. It's the long, drawn-out affairs that worry me, if I'm going to have that fear of death. And yet, if we look around the world, most, many people are actually afraid of dying. There's this great unknown that's out there. There's this fear of what's coming we shouldn't be afraid of death as Christian people because we know what's coming and that unknownness is a part of the fear that's there but one of the commentators came up with something which I thought was very interesting he said look fear of death can be understood in two ways one is the fear of death itself and the other is the fear that is there because of death So that Adam, when he sinned, God had said, this day you will surely die. And what's the very next thing we have? Is that God and Adam, that that God is walking in in the garden and wants to see Adam and says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam hides and God says to him, why did you hide? And Adam says, well, I hid because I was afraid. I was naked. I was afraid. This broken relationship with God creates in us and brings us to fear. 
Because in our hearts we know that God is righteous. We know that God is holy and we know that God is separate from us and we know that we have broken his law and we're afraid of him. Why is it that so many people do an amazing number of things to try and get in relationship with God? I don't know if you've ever seen us being in the Sudan and seeing those whirling dervishes. You know, they've got all sorts of things stuck through their bodies and they're turning around in circles really fast and not falling over and they're doing all of this as a religious experience to try and get close to God, to show their devotion. And you think, boy, that's nuts. You see in the Middle Ages, you know, the monks are going through smacking their head with a board and doing all sorts of things to try and show that they truly love God. They're afraid of his rejection. They'll do anything to get there. They're a slave to that. And there's there's two types of slavery that are there. There's the one where we're afraid of death and so we rush around this world to get as much done in this time frame that we possibly can because we don't know what's coming afterwards. And then there's the slavery that we have because whatever we do, we know that one day we have to face a righteous judge. And the writer of the Hebrew says, we're free in Christ of all of that. Because Christ tasted death for us we are now free from all that slavery. We don't have to question or worry about what comes after death. But not only that, in this life, we don't have to seek all sorts of ways to try and have a relationship with God by our own strength because it's all been done for us in Christ. He has paid and honoured God on our behalf. And all of the dishonour that we have given to God and all of the rejection and rebellion that we've had against God has been dealt with. And so what are we? We're free. And we serve him now out of love, not out of duty. We serve him now because we want to please our master, not because we're afraid of what he might do to us. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, it's fitting that Christ died and suffered on the cross because this way he saves us. He sets us free. He's broken the power of the devil over us. And then thirdly, verses 16 through the end, not only is it fitting that he's done this so that he might stand with us, solidarity, family, and that we together with him, he with us, might stand before God in trust and faith, not only because he's paid the penalty so that in the end and even now while we live, we are not afraid of God and what's coming, but he says he's done this because by coming and being one of us, he can be faithful in standing with us, in serving as our high priest to serve God and us because he is God and he is one with us. And so verses 16 on would say, For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. This helps is not just the word for saves, it's that ongoing daily help that he's giving to folk. What, what is this? For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He's paid for our sin. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Not only does he save us, but he serves us all the way through as I have priest between us and God. I suppose I'm not supposed to make confessions like this because I know pastors are supposed to be perfect and I'm sure our other pastors are. Actually, Daryl's not here. I'm not sure our other pastors are. I'm not. I sin. I fail. I get tempted and I don't do it. But not only that, I, I get down sometimes. And there are trials and tribulations and there's suffering that goes on. And I've been around the world enough that I've talked with lots of people. I've talked with a lot of Christians. Sometimes Christians think that their life are always going to be up on the high. But most Christians that I know, if not all of them, even though they have this now relationship with God where they know that for all eternity they're going to be with him in heaven, they know that he's dealt with their sin and they're no longer slaves in this world, we still go through temptations and sufferings and trials and tribulations in this world. Whether it's broken relationships, whether it's depression, whether it's physical ailment, whether it's our family that gets broken, whether it's our finances that get ruined, whatever it is, we suffer in so many sorts of ways and we struggle to live a life which pleases God in that circumstance. And the writer to the Hebrew says, and he's going to say it in the next couple of chapters in much greater depth, one of the things that Jesus does by coming and being a human, which is, is fitting for God, is that God then can stand with us through all of that. Not just standing with us in the way of saying, well, I'd like you to know I'm omniscient God. I get everything. Because like I have to get everything, I'm omniscient God. And if I know everything, of course I know how you feel. Have you ever been in that situation where you're talking to someone about their problems or your problems and they say words like, I know how you feel. And you think, no, you don't know how I feel. You haven't got a clue how I feel. Or they'll say, or you know, I tend to say something along those lines. I'm with you on this. And you think, no. You're not with me. You're sitting there where you are. You don't have any idea where I am. Go through a temptation in terms of sexuality. And someone's married. And they say, well, I understand what it's like to be tempted to sleep outside of marriage. I know that. And you say, no, you don't. You're married. You can have sex anytime you want to. You haven't got a clue what I'm going through. You might have 20 years ago, but it's all done away with now. Or someone who's got enough money and they're talking to someone who's struggling with cash. And they say, look, it's okay, don't worry, God provides. Yeah, well, he might have provided for you 20 years ago, but you don't understand what it's like now for me. Or we talk about persecution that comes on people for their faith. People say to me, well, often they say to me, well, look, it's okay for you. You're a preacher. You can stand up and talk about Jesus all you like. That's okay. That's your thing. You don't know how hard it is for me to stand up 
for Jesus in my workplace. You just don't get it. And the writer of the Hebrews says, everyone else might be able to say, I don't get it. But Jesus has gone and suffered and been tempted in every way like us. So that as our high priest, the one who stands between us and God, us and God, he can help us in every way through that situation. He gets it because he's been there. The objection often comes, Jesus hasn't been there. He was perfect like. If you can't sin, you don't know how hard it is to be in that situation. Think what the writer of the Hebrews would say, but he's perfect, true. But that means that he was tested even more. Let me see if I can explain that. You wouldn't guess it from my physique, but I like Kentucky Fried Chicken chips with extra salt. (laughs) Gravy on them is extra good as well. You pop that in front of me, like that. Temptation, I give in. Just like that. Because I really like it. I'm predisposed towards eating it. It's straightforward. I just go there straight away. But you have someone who is hungry, but who's not allowed to eat potatoes. And you try and tempt them to eat something they shouldn't, and they're starving. You can have to tempt them a lot more with so many other things until they finally give in. Does that make sense at all? The harder it is for a person to give in, the more you can test them before they do give in. Now, let's say you have someone who is perfect and will always do the right thing. How much can you test them? Well, you just keep pushing the limits. I give in really easy. You don't have to tempt me with food. I'll take it. But if I couldn't eat it, then you could keep throwing everything you wanted in front of me. And the temptation would be far worse, if you like. Far harder, far stronger, far deeper. And the writer of the Hebrews pretty much comes to say this about our perfect saviour. He went through sufferings to such a great extent that we don't begin to understand. You think you've had a fear of death and rejection? Christ understood from when he was very young that he was going to suffer on the cross and die. You read the beginning of the Gospels. He knew what his end was. He went through everything with a full awareness of the suffering that he was going to be punished with on our behalf and he did it still. We see people wandering down the street and we have lust towards them. Jesus was tempted in so many ways and he didn't lust, which meant that he actually was able to go through far more before he gave in. Well, this is the argument I think the writer of the Hebrews is saying. So if we come and we want to say, Jesus doesn't understand it, the writer of the Hebrews says, no, he gets it. He really does get it because he came and he suffered in a way that you would never know because you always give in before it gets really hard. He had to keep going through it until it was really, really, really hard and then still stand firm. He understands what you're going through. So if the first part was that 
He stands with us, let's not be ashamed. The second reason was that he saves us. The application for there would be, well, don't live like a slave to the world. But the third is if he serves us as our high priest and we know that, then come to him with your burdens. I think sometimes we don't go to Jesus because we're not sure he gets it. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, the reason that Jesus did the things that he did and came the way that he came was so that you could go to him. He'll understand. There's nothing you can tell him that he won't be able to identify with and help you through. He'll be able to help you through your depression. He'll be able to help you through your temptations when it comes to sexuality. He'll be able to help you through your desire to have more finance and above and beyond. He'll be able to help you with the pain that you're suffering in your illness. Whatever it is that you're going through which you think is a separation between you and God, Christ can stand with you in that and help you through that because he's been there. And all of these are reasons why it is fitting that Christ came. I'm going to close in prayer now. But I'd like to suggest to you that as you go through the rest of this week, think on these things. That Christ stands with you as your brother, as family. It's not just that you're hidden in him, but he came down to stand with you. And he's not ashamed to do that. Don't be ashamed of him. He did it so that he would break this fear that we have of death and the ability of Satan to accuse us. No matter what you've done, you don't have to stand forever ashamed of it. Christ has dealt with it. People around you might continue to accuse you for some sin in the past or for some ongoing sin that you've done. Christ doesn't. If you've come to him and his blood has saved you, then there's no more accusations that God holds against you. Satan can't hold them against you and no one else can either. And even if you're holding it against yourself, you have no right to. So think about that. Think about that you stand clean before God. Thirdly, no matter what temptations you're going through or despair you have, you have someone who understands that and will help you through it. So as you go through the rest of this week, think on those things. So I'll pray as the musicians come to lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you might Help us in this week to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Focused on him as our saviour. And that no matter what the world thinks or no matter what the others around us think, it shows us your greatness in that he might come to be like us. Father, I thank you that Christ came to be one with us, 
that we are family together. That even in our brokenness and our fallenness, in our rebellion against you, that Christ was prepared to stand with us, not ashamed of us. Father, I pray that you will help us not to be ashamed of him. Father, I pray that you will let us not feel the accusation of Satan, the people around us, or supposedly even yourself. But rather because of what Christ has done, we will be free from that accusation. And we will recognise through the week that we stand as your forgiven people. Help us to live in the certainty and truth of that. Finally, Father, I pray that for many of us we go through struggles and trials and difficulties in life. We don't know who to talk to, we don't know who to turn to and sometimes it just seems like we're on our own. And yet there's nothing that we go through that you haven't gone through. There's nothing that we go through that you don't understand. There's nothing that we've gone through or go through that you can't help us to deal with and to still live as your children through that situation. So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for him as our high priest. And we ask that throughout the rest of this week you might bless us as we seek to live as the children of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.